0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Ben Stroud about his story, Three Omens of Federico de Montefeltro, which appeared in issue 23 of The Common. Ben Stroud is the author of the story collection Byzantium, which won the 2013 Story Prize Spotlight Award and the Breadloaf Writers Conference Bakeless Prize for Fiction. His stories have been published in Harper's, Zoetrope, Virginia Quarterly Review, Oxford American, Vice, and One Story, among other places, and have been anthologized in the Pushcart Prize anthology, New Stories from the South, and the Best American Mystery Stories. He is currently Associate Professor of English and Creative Writing at the University of Toledo. Ben Stroud, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Would you set the scene for our conversation? Describe where you're living, where you're calling from now?
0: Uh, so I'm in Toledo, Ohio, as you mentioned, uh, uh, an associate professor here at the University of Toledo. Um, I'm actually in my campus office right now, which is pretty, has, it has no windows, so it's pretty, I wouldn't say bleak, but bland. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Toledo is a great place, um, and that's where I've been living for the last, gosh, I guess, decade.
1: Oh, wow, okay. Um, I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read those first few
0: paragraphs for us? Sure. Three Omens of Federico de Montefeltro, Urbino, 1472. Ottaviano held the staff high and steady as Scipio tugged at the bunches of leaves fixed to its top. He remains content, Ottaviano? asked the drafts, Keeper? He does, the keeper said. Twice since sunrise he's moved his bowels. Ottaviano watched Scipio chew. With his knobbly horns, his puzzled hide, and his great neck, he had clearly been made for a far different existence in his home beyond the Nile a home for which even the library's grandest atlas possessed only the most rudimentary of maps. And yet, snatched from that home, confined to his pen, the animal betrayed neither alarm nor sorrow. Once Scipio finished off the leaves, Ottaviano gave the pull back to the keeper, and, cutting through the stables, returned to the palace. It was near the end of July. Three weeks had passed since Batista had died, weeks in which Audiviano had had been acting as count while his brother Federico mourned the loss of his cherished second wife. No part of ruling was in Ottaviano's nature. He loathed the public life, and now especially he would prefer to be in his turret room, readying himself for another ascent. Instead, he had to sit through his mornings, receiving petitioners, entertain the envoys who'd been arriving from all over Italy for Batista's funeral, and this afternoon visit an abbess to make, on Federico's behalf, the weekly inquiry into her nun's health. The sole half-hour whose loss Ottaviano didn't resent was his call on his six orphaned nieces, whose tears he attempted to dry with, his, with assurances of the bliss toward which their mother's soul was traveling, and on his nephew, poor, plump Guidobaldo as yet innocent of all that was happening around him. Every minute was accounted for, and even as he walked along the hallway to a privy, craving the quiet it would offer, he was grabbed by an old man, one of the six who'd been attached to Batista's household, who now pleaded for some guarantee as to his future. Only after Ottaviano hoped told him he would have a good word for him shortly, but the old man let him go. For a moment, a single moment in all the day, Ottaviano was free, but he took little comfort from this temporary freedom. Not after, last night, Federico had spoken of his three omens. A hope had been rekindled in Ottaviano, a hope the three omens might well threaten. These last weeks, despite having to attend to every care that was usually Federico's, Ottaviano had also, thanks to the grace of one of Providence's turns, focused on reviving his efforts to speak with his son, Bernardo, for 10 years, Bernardo's body had been lying in its tomb. At present, his soul was likely, Ottaviano knew, in one of the far uppermost spheres.
1: Thank you for reading that. Um, for our listeners who may not have read your story yet, would you describe what the piece is about, sort of summarize for us?
0: Sure. So it's set um, in yeah, 1472. I'd like to look back again to check that myself. Um, and it's a moment in, uh, let's see. How how big to get here? A moment in sort of the life of Federico de Montefeltro's kind of long life in court um, after his wife has died. Um, And basically, he's kind of had this moment where he's been at the height of sort of fortune or whatever. Everything's been going great for him. Um, And there's this turn that's happened in his life. And he's wondering, you know, does this mean that he needs to, like, do something? Is he being punished? Uh, So he's turned to his maybe brother we might talk about that a bit later um Ottaviano for help with um you know how should I interpret what might be these omens and do I need to step away from ruling my my city my little principality um and Ottaviano at the same time who is sort of into the occult um is has been trying to ascend through kind of he's a he's a hermetic he's into I cannot pronounce I I will Boggle the pronunciation, uh, Hermes Trismegistus' writings, um, hermeticism, um, kind of a mysticism, um, and he's trying to reach his son who's died. Um, and this requires intense concentration. Um, and, and he's close to finding a way to do that, he thinks. Um, but if he has to take over the state, he can't. So his decision is, do I say, sure, I'll take over the state and I'll d- decide that, yes, these omens are true and you're right, you should step aside, Federico, and I'll take over. And give up basically reconnecting with my son, um, or do I decide maybe that I'm going to interpret the omens this other way so that Federico stays on and I can keep doing what I want to do, and then and kind of risk maybe causing havoc for Federico and the state and and, and, and the line, the family basically. Um, I think that's essentially a way to encapsulate it. It's kind of in some ways it feels hard, even though it's not that long of a story to sort of. That's that's the heart of of the dilemma, uh, at the heart of the story.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly how I would summarize it. Um I'm just so curious how did you come to write this story? Like what inspired you to start work on it? How did it come together as a first draft?
0: Yeah, so um that could take a a, a lot. Um, <laughs> it started out so I w- I went to Rome um I guess it's about 10 years ago. Um to, to do research for something else, and then I was driving. Uh, to get, I took it. I wanted to follow a, a an old Roman road for a particular reason that doesn't really matter here. Um, and I'd mapped out like what is this? What is the highway that matches this road? And you had to kind of get. It was not on the like Italian freeways. You had to kind of keep staying on the like small state highways. Um, and so I was driving north from Rome into um, the Adriatic Sea, um, and again for this sort of research purpose, um, and part of the path took you through Urbino and I had, you know, I had my guidebook and I had been vaguely familiar with Federico de Montefeltro just like, somehow I had seen, I think, it's just out there like images of him. Like if you see an image, you're like, oh, I've probably seen that painting. There's like several paintings of him that are pretty well known and there's his kind of famous studiolo. And maybe somehow, I don't know if there's an art history class or history or whatever, textbook, something else. So I was like, I'm going to stop off here, take a look. Uh, so I got there about an hour before the palace shut down. So I got out walked around Urbino, walked around the palace, um, and then just went back in my car and and kept on. Um, And then years go by, and I was finishing up working on something else, and I was just thinking, oh, what's next? What do I want to work on? And for some reason, that visit to Urbino, you know, that kind of randomly just sort of like started to pull on me, like, oh, I think there's something here. And so I just went and got, you know, looked back through the materials I had, like I'd bought the little like guidebook or whatever for the museum. And just starting from there, and getting histories and other things kind of started to zero in on like, okay, who was this person? What what is there in his life? Is there something in here that might be a focal point for a story? And sort of kind of, as I read, finding myself to this moment. Um, A lot of what's happening in the story is sort of based in like kind of historical fact. I mean, the omens bit is is sort of invented, Um, but the actual kind of occasion for the story and the things that have happened to Federico, um, the loss of his wife, the, the sack of Volterra, all the timing. There's even a moment where he was even writing to someone and talking about the fact that he's like, what has happened in my life? Like everything was great. He doesn't say it this way, but he's everything was great. And now it sucks. All <laughs> right. Like what happened? Right. <laughs> and it happened really quickly. Like it is completely turned. Um, hmm. And so for me, that was kind of like a valuable, like story moment. Like, Oh, this totally. is a moment where a person has undergone a great shock. Their life has completely reversed itself. That might be a way into thinking about, you know, various things. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, did you, it sounds like you have something to say about this. Did you make up Ottaviano, or is he a real historical character, and you just sort of imagined his point of view?
0: No, so he is real. Um, he is um, what is tricky about him, and it was tricky to address in this story. Is Federico's parentage is still like in dispute? Like, like who? So Ottaviano is either his brother, or like they're either uncle and nephew, um, or or something else. Uh, it's been a while, I can't remember, but, but basically it's unsure because Federico is not born, even though know, he became like the ruler. He was not, um, um, legitimate, a legitimate child of, of the person who kind of made him his son. Um, and there's all sorts of speculation about who was, who were his real parents and then, and what is Ottaviano's relationship to him. But Ottaviano is a character. Now he's much less discussed than Federico since Federico is this kind of very famous, uh, personage, um, in, um, this moment in history, there's stuff about him. Ottaviano, you have to kind of like find these little like footnotes or or things about him. And this, but the fact that he was into like alchemy and into mysticism is sort of a fact. He had his own tower um, in the palace to do that. Um, and he did take over the state from time to time. He did lose a son. Um, I don't know if the circumstances were the same, but about the, I think it's the same age. Um, I think it was recorded. I can't remember. But also awesome that it was doing that research. So a lot of the pieces here you know, minus, I like had to invent the omens, but a lot of the kind of pieces in the context were actually real. Um, or, you know, as far as I know, based on historical accounts.
1: Okay. So uh, the, the logistics and the process of, of how Odoviano attempts to ascend are, are really intriguing to me. It's sort of this like knowledge equals power situation where growing his knowledge about the order, the spiritual world helps him ascend further into these sort of spheres and eventually hopes to reach his son um, like you said so it sounds like I, while I was reading this I was trying to decide if you had invented this all on your own or if this is like based on some, some something that you researched but it sounds like maybe that that comes from something you did research
0: yeah so I did check out books on hermeneutics and sort of and again I it, it was it's easy to get lost there so I was trying to figure out as someone who's not into mysticism. I was like, how, how, how does this work exactly? You know, what, what is he actually doing? What did they believe? Um, And, and what's tricky here too, in some ways is this moment sort of, in history is when this text has been found by the Medici, uh, the Medici have sent like monks out to go find books, um, which is a big moment for the Renaissance. And one of the books they find is this book by Hermes Trismegistus that purports to be this lost hidden knowledge from like ancient Egypt that was sitting in this Greek, a monastery untouched for hundreds of years. Um, and then everyone's like trying to get someone to copy it for them because I mean, the printing press has been just invented, but you know, everything has to be hand copied for the most part still. Um, and so I think that comes up in this story. I can't remember if I cut that part where he's like waiting for his copy. Um, but um, so yeah, so I found books on the history of Hermeticism and that from based on what I could gather on the, the things that were like, that were in that text itself that I was able to kind of find um, and accounts of it, I think that's sort of what they thought they were doing um, or what how they were doing. I mean, I think that there's multiple interpretations to it. So I had to kind of figure out like, okay, I'm not going to necessarily be an expert on mysticism because that would take, I don't want to go down that road. <laughs> that would take a lot. Um, but they seem to be as much of an approximation that plausibly what someone in this moment how they might interpret those teachings um, and apply them. So it's semi-invented, semi-researched, I guess. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I I like the way it's handled because I feel like, uh, you know, what you just explained is so complicated that it could be, you know, a huge heft in the story, like a big part of the story, but it's all very matter of fact and sort of very succinctly explained and he sits down to do it and this is how he does it and this is what he needs. And yeah, I think you handled it really well. Oh, thanks. I think my favorite thing about this story is is sort of how it asks us to take very seriously these stakes that I think in our modern world, we might see as sort of fantastical or unreal, you know, like if, if we don't believe in mysticism. So we have this sort of crucial decision you mentioned for Taviano about what to do concerning the omens. And he risks losing, you know, everything, either his family or his this opportunity he thinks he has to, to speak to his son again. And those stakes are so high for him. But Uh, You know, to me, the the magic of a story is making us feel how important that is, even though it's like really far outside our own experience of reality. Um, You know, like we might not think think those things are important, but but we feel it when Ottaviano does. Can you talk about that dynamic at all?
0: Yeah, I mean, that was a. I mean, there were a lot of challenges. I mean, I think for this story, I mean, for any story, and a lot of it's kind of what you mentioned before. It's like how. To convey what he's doing without it being like here's tons of research and it's too complicated and it just like weighs the story completely down but but yeah the issue of stakes i mean it's something that um you know i think about a lot especially in in teaching writing as well is that the thing i talk about is if as long as like the main character cares then usually we'll care so i think trying to find a way that that even if we're not on you know, and maybe some readers are going to be on board with the mysticism, and that's that's fine. Completely fine with me. Um, but if we're not on board with that, if we're kind of like, this is really kind of sort of abstract or abstruse or whatever. Um, but if we feel how much it matters to Octaviano, if it's real to him and he cares and those stakes are there, then and hopefully that's what brings the reader in, because then we care. And so... Um, I kind of feel like that always matters, whether it's a story where things are completely realistic and patently believable. But if we don't, but if the main character doesn't seem to care, then we're gonna like not going to care, even if it's believable. Um, so conversely, if it's something where it's like, no, this is like in the quote unquote real world and believable, as long as the main character really cares and we feel that, then at least the hope is always that then the reader will come in and also start to care too.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm just thinking, like, do you when you're writing, uh, you know, are you making decisions about how to explain it in a way that that makes sure that we feel that he cares that much? I'm just thinking about how, how clearly the stakes are presented in the story, like that he, he has this very clear choice. And there's no like wishy washiness about like, what if the omens aren't true? It's, It's sort of like he believes the omens are true. And he still has to make this decision about whether or not to tell his brother he believes them.
0: Yeah, I mean, some of that's in the revision process too. I think, and that often I feel like, um, you know, there's a certain level of the revision where you're trying to clarify those stakes, like you know, or I think early on, at least for me, I guess I didn't say you. It's not, I don't know how general it is, but it's sort of finding my way to the story. What is the heart of the story? What will these stakes be? And then with each process, kind of refining and refining and or or, or shaving down or or I, don't know, I went to the eye doctor recently, you know, and it's always, they're always checking, you know, giving you the choices of what's the sharper image, right? Getting that sharper image of like, what is it? So I think there were versions of the story where some that was kind of fuzzier. Um, so I did try to keep a, a line through it where he, he was still like hoping that maybe the omens wouldn't be true. And that maybe the, the ones, as he kind of heard more that they might be like debatable, but then by the end it's like, no, these, he, he believes they're true. Um, but I think in earlier versions, I may have, had more doubt there um, or more wiggle room for him, but it became more like, no, I need to like, like he can't be let off the hook, right? If he's gonna make the choice, he's gonna make the choice and he needs to feel like that choice. So, so some of that, I think there was a sense of it from the beginning and some of it, you know, was, as you refine the story kind of like zeroing in on like, how do I make this sharp and distinct um, for him?
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I also think, you know, again, with modern readers, like, they will have doubts about whether omens are true or not. And so I feel like it, it, it's even more compelling to just see Ottaviano have, have zero doubts about whether they're, that they, they mean something or not, or whether they mean exactly what his brother thinks they mean. It, it does just sort of ratchet up those stakes again. Yeah. Um, I think my second favorite thing about this story is, is, is CPO, the um, a giraffe that is kept at the court um, who uh, you mentioned it when you read from the first part of the story. Um, And uh, Ottaviano visits him and comes to identify with his captivity. uh, But there's also just something sort of fun about those scenes with the giraffe and and almost kind of funny. You know, they, they talk about, you know, has he moved his bowels and that kind of thing. Can you talk about choosing to include the giraffe in this story?
0: Yeah. So that's another element that uh, comes from the historical record and that Mm -hmm. I was reading. um, there's, There's a biography of Federico, uh, like the one really big English language biography of him was written in like the 1840s. Um and it's this big three volume thing. And it lists all this like stuff about his court. And one of the things in there is it says he had a camel leopard. And I'm like, what's a camel leopard and a camel <laughs> leopard is an old fashioned name for a giraffe. Um, <laughs> so, so I wanted to bring the giraffe in there. He had other animals too, because it's like the idea of like, I don't know. I, I was like trying to bring in as many, you know, it's hard. You kind of want to, Sometimes it's it's, it's like hard how many details can you stuff in, you know, of, like, the court. Like, a lot of little, you know, little details, too, about, like, you know, paying the visit to the abbess or whatever. It's, like, that's a thing that Federico did, you know, like, apparently, like, according to this. So I was trying to, like, find all this stuff. Or the old men who attended Batista. It's, like, yeah, there they they were that was part of her court. Where she had these old men that would hang out. I don't know what they did, but they were just there. And anyway, so, um, so, so for that reason, I wanted to kind of bring in the draft, too, because, like, the idea of just – It's just one other place, I guess, for Ottaviano to go. Um, And then just to get the sense of kind of what part of this court would be. And then, yeah, he kind of, once Scipio was there, kind of took on a life of his own and it became one way for Ottaviano to kind of think about his predicament and kind of project onto Scipio. Um, And then I kept thinking about the, and I can't remember um, when I first learned that drafts don't really make much of a noise. Like they're kind of, I don't think they're completely mute. I think under I think they're pretty much sorry. I, have to, I should double check this again, but they don't like really like. Can you really think about it? But they don't really make noises. They just they're very quiet creatures. Um, and I forget if they can't actually bleat or if they just don't. I forget what the deal is, but I remember that being a thing. So um, I remember thinking about the fact that he might project on uh, coming with the idea that he's projecting onto him of like, hey, here's this other creature who's having to live this life that that he's not made for. Just I'm not made for ruling, but he's fine. You know, and then kind of realizing, oh wait, no, actually he can't complain. You know, like he's just here, um, and I'm, and I'm, and I've been kind of fooling myself and thinking that that he's like actually happy. Um, so uh, yeah, so it just became kind of like another partly Scipio, another way to kind of draw out, give, give space for Ottaviano to kind of think through his dilemma, but then also just have this whole other element of the court that's like, yeah, that is kind of fun and, and has that kind of, yeah, you know, as you mentioned that humor to it and it kind of gives an outlet to, otherwise It I felt like, I mean, there's always risk with the story. and I think it was just with this story, it becomes too almost like locked down or suffocated or whatever. And so you needed some kind of something else. And that, that became useful for that reason too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I just on a logistical level, I think about how when I write things, you know, sometimes you need time for your characters to like reflect and think about things. But obviously that, you know, runs the risk of being very boring or very interior. And and I love just, you know, going to visit the giraffe and sort of having these thoughts, it feels really natural, but but gives those moments like a little more, yeah, like a little more levity or interest. Yeah. So from my, my research before we talked, I, I understand that this type of story, something something very historic isn't at all unusual for you, but I do feel like it's, it's at least sort of unusual for us at the common. We don't see a lot of submissions set in historical times, or if we do, it's at least pieces set in the 20th century, you know? Um, how did you start writing these types of historic stories? Like what draws you to the past when, when you sit down to write?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, part of it just goes way back. Um my father was a history teacher, so I had an early fascination with history that I kind of got from him and was always interested in, like, I don't know, history of, of far-flung places, too, and it's kind of all over the place. Um, I majored in history as well as English in college, so I kind of indulged that interest there. Um, so it was always there, but I never really thought about it once I, once I kind of realized, oh, writing, that's what I'm, I want to do, that's what I need to do. I don't think I'd really thought about how history would play a role there. Um until right about when I went to um, the MFA, um, and that's when I started reading um, writers like um, Jim Shepard uh, or um, Stephen Millhauser uh, come to mind. Although there's a lot of others. Um, I mean, it's funny when you think about that. I'm all like, "Well, I'd already read read you know Toni Morrison, and she writes you know beloved historical fiction, right?" I mean, once you start to look for it, you're like, "No, it's it's all over the place." But that's when I started thinking about, especially in terms of short stories. Um, I think those two writers, especially, I was like, "This is really interesting. This thing they're doing." Um, you know, Angela Carter also, although she, her stuff isn't necessarily historical, but there's a kind of quasi-historicalness to um, some of her stories. Are kind of set in the, I guess, you know, set in the 19th century, roughly. Um, I remember those being kind of early things, just being kind of blown away, like, like, wow, how do you even do this? Like, this is just, I don't, you know, it, it felt like a, an impossible thing to do. Um, but then I. Um, I guess it was really that first semester in graduate school that I was kind of thinking like I don't know how to do this this seems impossible to me but then I kind of thought well look I'm here (laughs) at this MFA program the whole point of being here is to like stretch yourself you know try new things you know figure it out right um and so that's when I started writing um really one of the first stories I guess you know I'm trying to think there might have been some other ones but I guess the first one that really started to take um ended up being a title story of of the story collection Byzantium. the first version of it was like completely different and, and I bet I wrote it for my first workshop. Um, I mean, it was a second story in that workshop, but the first workshop I was in in, in grad school um, and then left it alone for like a year or two and then completely rewrote it later. But, um, but that's when I started taking a stab at like, what would it be like to write a story set? In that case, it's set in the seventh century, you know, like, like what do I need? What do I not need? Um, and I didn't really figure that all out right away. Right. It's been in each story, like th- this story that's in the common took actually a lot of research. Um, they don't all take quite as much. Um, but um but yeah, so I just kinda of got started going with that and then started asking a lot of questions, doing a lot more reading. Anytime someone had come through, um, you know, who wrote in that vein one way or the other, you know, I'd I would ask them questions, or some of the people I worked with in grad school had done that as well. Um and it was interesting too, I mean, and this is going a little bit farther, but I remember thinking about like what do you need to write, you know, historical fiction. And I remember asking like Stephen Millhauser came to to, to to visit our program while I was there and so I asked him like what, what do you do and he was talking about you know researching you know what kind of street lamps were in Manhattan in like 1894 you know like it's really like detailed stuff and then Edward P. Jones came through and I asked him and he was like well you know they had horses then you know <laughs> like for him he was like no it's not about the research and I'm like and that too huh. was really instructive and I actually use that story a lot to students to talk about research because they're both phenomenal writers and you know, they both won the Pulitzer. They both like have done right. really tremendous like work and work in the historical vein and like completely in some ways, different approaches to the like really high level research to like, no, you don't really need that. And it, so I think there's not necessarily one right answer. This is kind of like not really the answer you're not the question you're answering, but as I've been thinking about what I need and how I kind of developed it, I just remember going from the, at the beginning, feeling so overwhelmed. Like, I don't know how you even begin to kind of getting to a And it's still a challenge story by story what's needed um but but kind of realizing there's not really one right answer to how to even do a story like that i guess if that makes sense
1: mm, yeah i love that idea um yeah i did i did think of jim shepherd when i was rereading your story this morning um he's he's a a friend of the common and we love him <laughs> um and i love that you know that thing that he does of taking like very specific historical moments and just turning it just a little bit and so it's totally unfamiliar yeah um i i wrote a novel of historical fiction and now i'm working on something that's much more contemporary and i have really found that i, I miss doing that kind of research um those real historical events just felt like a frame i could sort of work within and now i don't have any frame anymore right <laughs> so i'm wondering like do you approach stories the same whether they're contemporary or historical or is it like a totally different process
0: oh yeah that's a good question um I think, in no in, in matter in no matter the story, I feel like I'm always trying in the early stages to kind of like find what is the heart, or find also what are the limits. Like, what is it? Where does the story begin? Where does the story end? Where is the tension? Uh, what is, you know, if it's if there's a narrator telling the story, why are they telling the story? Can comes can be often helpful helpful thing to think about, um, and so in some ways that process is the same. The only difference if it's a contemporary stories there might be like less research, but in some ways I'm still looking for and trying to dig my way toward what is the shape of this thing, you know, and and what will be the thing that kind of holds it together? What is the like, either the, the great desire, the want that's powering the story and that, that creates that conflict? Um, and again, I think often looking for limits and I think kind of what you mentioned about historical events helps with that. Sometimes they give you the limits, they impose the like, you know, in some ways that's what, helped with, you know, this story is I was at first looking at all of Federico's life. And so I was looking for what is the moment where something sparked, what was the moment where things kind of felt maybe a little extra dangerous or something was happening that might throw him off you know, uh, you know, you know, you know. I guess that traditional thing, traditional thing you're looking for too. I mean, you know, you don't want the normal day. You want the day that's out of the ordinary, right? So this is the moment when you know he's had this great triumph and then this great loss. So things are thrown off for him. So when somebody's looking for that, no matter the time period. I guess uh, of the story is kind of crucial.
1: Mm, yeah. No, that totally makes sense. I also shouldn't make it sound like people don't do research for contemporary stories. There are <laughs> lots of contemporary stories that would require research. No, that's true. Um, it's
0: exactly true. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: I'm just feeling a little bit. Um, yeah, at sea without that, the way that I wrote the first book. <laughs> um, I, So I always love hearing about a writer's revision process. And you sort of mentioned it a little bit, but I wonder if you would just tell us a little bit more about revising this piece, like how different it is from the first draft. Is it significantly shorter? I mean, did you do any work with, I think you worked with our editor in chief, Jen Acker, a little bit?
0: Yeah, so there was a little bit of work um, after you guys took the story to kind of sharpen some things. Um, but even before that moment, I mean, there, yeah, no, there was, uh, I'm trying to think how long, if I think about the process, I think hmm, maybe five, I mean, this was, this story took a long time, at least for a story. I mean, I guess it's always hard to say, because you hear some people talk about stories taking years, but then they mentioned that the, the the years that that story took was like putting the story away for a long time, then take, getting back to it. In this case, I feel like, if I remember correctly, it was about four to six months writing on this story and working on it roughly every day. Right. So that was a lot. And a lot of it was because there was so much, I was trying to get into it and trying to figure out the sequence of so like sequencing, like, you know, so, you know, every, every story, you have to teach the reader how to read it. And you have to teach the reader what matters. Um, and you have to do that without the reader really figuring that out. I mean, without that feeling too burdensome to the reader. So it has to be very smooth. Right. So that's always a challenge. And in this story, it felt like an extra challenge because it's in such a distant place in time. And so a lot of the work in the revision was trying to figure out what matters and what doesn't matter. Like, what does the reader need to know and what do they not need to know? So what can I end up cutting? And then how do I sequence those little details in there? And how do I drop in things so you know so that if there's a moment – I'm um, oh, sorry, I'm flipping back to look at it. I refer to, you know, uh, Ottaviano, uh, you know, giving uh, uh, assurances to his nieces about, oh, hey, you're, you know, your your mother's soul is ascending through the spheres, right? So that was also very deliberate because I was trying to like start to plant little hints so that later when we get more into the hermeticism, we've already kind of gotten those clues. There's, you know, either the reader has kind of looked at it and be like oh it's that's all about or else they haven't but then like later it, it, it's that so like a lot of the revision is trying to figure out how to sequence that so that it feels smooth and, and it's not super clunky um but then also trying to figure out like what even matters and then of course all the sentence level stuff too like how does this make sure this actually sounds like decent and not you know like horrible um I, i'm trying to think how many drafts i mean let's see I, I mean i can look at my computer really quickly um this would not take me very long um uh, cause I'm trying, cause I, I, kind of, what I tend to do, my actual process to get to that, since you asked about that as well, is I, you know, I write it all out, you know, just in a word document. Um, and then, um, I print it out and I make revision, my revisions like with a pen. Um, and then I type up those notes and then do it all again until it's done. And often, especially those first revisions, I'm basically rewriting a story by hand. I'm usually cutting pretty much everything. Um, it's usually lucky if 10%. Of the stuff remains um so it's a lot it's really kind of um sort of grueling work because i'm having to type up my own notes uh also i have really terrible handwriting that sometimes i can't even read so that creates problems although i've decided that that's kind of an opportunity like okay the specific word there maybe doesn't matter um but i do find that kind of like writing it out and then kind of sort of Feeding it back through myself as I type it up, it's, it's sometimes helpful as I start to kind of internalize the story and think through how it works and think through what's needed and what's not needed. Um, but let's see the last draft. Okay, yeah. So the last dr- number I have on here is forty-eight. Um, so that Holy means about forty-eight holly. drafts. That is on the lot. The, that's a lot for me. Um, not not a lot more than usual. I feel like it, it's usually at least. 15 to 20 but uh, instances of doing that but um and usually toward the end it's more like really small adjustments um but this one just took a lot because it was a lot to distill um and a lot to figure out what needed to be in there and what didn't need to be in there um and also refining We talked before about the stakes trying to figure out like wait what is the heart of this story why, why would anybody care you know it, it it can be yeah i mean it was difficult to try to figure out or think through the fact that like yeah i mean this is <clears throat> Excuse me. It was hard to figure out the right because this, this, this is you know kind of abstract and so distant from the everyday reader's experience. So trying to figure out a way to make someone actually care about it did take uh, I think a lot of a lot of the work was there too.
1: Yeah, you know when I reread this this morning, I was surprised at how brief it was because in my memory it was quite an, a quite a big story, like quite expansive. And I think that's kind of masterful that it feels like this huge world and in my memory it was so elaborate and nuanced and complex but when i actually read it it's only a couple of pages and i think that's a a great sign
0: (laughs) oh yeah that's good to hear yeah i always try to i I, I always hope that there's more being delivered than takes space on the page or something i don't know how to phrase that
1: yeah Yeah. no i think you achieved it So you're an associate professor of English and creative writing at the university of Toledo. And I was just wondering if you might tell us a little bit about your approach to teaching creative writing or, or what you enjoy about that work. It just always like, seems like such a Herculean task to me, this idea of sort of teaching creativity.
0: Yeah. It, you know, it is hard and you, and, and, and hard to get your head around. I shouldn't, I mean, I don't know if it's, sorry, I'm trying to think, is it hard? I don't know. I think when you think about writing all the time, in some ways it feels easy to have these conversations with students. But, um, but also at the same time, I guess we been doing it for a while, so I think it 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 now feels in some ways less daunting. But um, but what you get at is there what is hard and what is is what what, what I think is scary is that question of like you know what can teaching do and what can't it do and, and and you know and one of the things and I try to like I try to get really meta with the students pretty often in the classroom and trying to say here's why I'm talking about this and here's how this works you know like here's the reason behind this lesson or or whatever. Um, and I try to convey to them the fact that like, you know, there are a lot of things that you can't like, like learn, right. There is a way in which writing or any art form, you know, any artist is in some way self-taught. Right. Um, and so, you know, you can't like, it's unlike say, I often pick on accounting because I have accountants in my family, but like you could take an accounting class and you walk away from that class and you know how to do a thing and you can go out and do the thing. Right. Um, with writing, it's not that simple. Like, you know, we can talk about, character and plot and all these things but then for you to actually figure that out you kind of have to go out and try it out again and again and again and again so in that way we can talk about principles in the classroom and how these things work and there's things for you to chew on um but it doesn't mean that you're gonna walk out the door and then be like oh now i can do it you know it's it's more like you did have to kind of use those to inst- essentially teach yourself right um which i think seems critical because otherwise you're just kind of copy copying what's been done versus kind of finding your own way so that you are finding your way to that like more distinctive approach even as you're maybe using these core principles that seem pretty common to all kinds of stories and so i try to highlight that in the classroom i try trying to mention them like that, that's how this works right don't don't necessarily expect that like if we talk about today about here's you know that a character's often especially your main character needs to want something like wanting things is really important uh in a story um and you know if you look at stories you might even know and, and how that's a thing that seems so obvious but really you kind of have to be told but that but that's not like the end of it. Go out and you know take a look as you read, think about how that works in the stories that you're reading. When someone wants something, what, what how does that empower the story? You know, note how often in a story you'll actually see the word want, you know, uh, it took me a long time to kind of figure that out, to realize that, no, it's this isn't like some hidden thing that writers try to hide. Often it's there right there in the story, you know, so-and-so wanted this, but you know, this, you know, like it's not, it, it can be pretty explicit. Um, And so I guess I try to emphasize that sense that that there is that trial and error that that does go beyond the classroom, but that in the classroom itself, we talk about, you know, those core principles. And then, of course, in workshop itself, we look at, you know, how is this story working? Where do we see some of that happening and where do we not see it happening? And and, and how might that help?
1: I was just going to ask you, because I'm curious, as a professor of English, do you teach text as well? Like, uh, what are you teaching this semester?
0: So, yeah, no, I do teach. So actually... um, So my background is I have an MFA, but I also have a PhD in literature. Um, And my position here at Toledo, I'm actually like split between literature and creative writing. So um, um, I mean, right now it's the summer, so I'm not teaching. But um, in the fall, I'll be teaching two creative writing classes, one through the intro creative writing, and then one the fiction workshop. But then in the spring, I'll be teaching two literature classes, uh, one on 20th and 21st century American fiction, and then one on um, American literary traditions, which is kind of not really a survey class, but kind of like a themed reading of American literature. Um, but I haven't actually taught lit- literature classes just because of certain staffing dynamics in our department. It, when I, 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 I had been teaching more literature than creative writing for my first years here, but the last few years it's been all creative writing, but sure now I'm getting back to teaching literature again.
1: Oh, interesting. So always our last question for guests is just a question about what, you know, what you're working on now, like what's next from you?
0: Oh yeah. Oh that's always always a question I'm kind of hesitant on. I'm I'm one of those writers right. who really, really, really I used to talk about in progress work, but um yeah, I was working on a thing that <laughs> I I have I have gotten to a stopping point with, uh so we'll see how that goes. Um and then um in some ways I guess I I feel like I can say stuff about another project. Um so this story there are other stories that kind of link with this story that's in the common. Um, So I'm, and I'm interested in trying to pursue, like keep writing more, but I'm, you know, I, I I would, I'd hope that I could keep linking up more stories with this. Um, But, uh, you know, it's always, that's kind of like a, I don't know if that's a thing that I will just, yeah. I'm kind of keeping that as sort of a long-term, like here and there sort of thing. And I'm not sure, like, when that will end <laughs> so I don't know um, and I'm always anxious to like talk about like oh this story I plan to write you know five years from now it's like yeah I, I don't know where I'll be there <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, but yeah so there are like uh, two other stories one that came out last summer and one that's coming out in the fall that kind of link up with this story that's not the common um, and then and we'll see if more make an appearance uh, oh, that's so
1: interesting I love that the, this story has siblings out in the world <laughs> Well, this has been so great. Ben Stroud, thanks so much for joining us. Um, So nice to talk with you about your story.
0: Thanks, and thanks again for having me.
1: Listeners, you can read Ben's story and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.